regardless of uh, your background, uh, whether you're a Christian or what you believe about God or the Bible, there's no denying, just from looking at the pages of history, that around 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ lived in a small part of the world that was known as the armpit of Rome. And that his life fundamentally changed the course of human history. And if something that significant happened, then you owe it to yourself to investigate what happened. If something supernatural might have happened, then doesn't it make sense, regardless of what you believe, to investigate the life of Jesus and to look at what was it about this man that caused him to radically alter the course of history. That's what we've been doing in this series entitled No Other Name. We've been looking at the life, death, teaching, uh, and resurrection of Jesus as we see it in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a narrative that most scholars believe uh, is based on the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And tonight we're going to continue on. We're going to be in the second part of chapter Five. And we're going to look tonight at really two stories. One kind of encompasses another. And what we're going to see in these two stories is uh, two characters who in many respects are nothing alike. Uh, they are about as far away from each other as you can imagine. One seems to have everything going for him. The other seems to have nothing going for her. One would be like what we would think of as a Wall Street executive. He's powerful. He's got a great job. Money is no object. His life is good. He's got a good family at home. And the other might be someone who, she's from a small town. She's in rural America. She doesn't have access to all the same benefits that this guy does. And despite that reality, the two of them find themselves in exactly the same position. They both find themselves at a place in their lives where they need Jesus to intervene on their behalf. More specifically, they find themselves facing circumstances that are outside their control. And they realize that the only way their situation is going to change is if Jesus does something for them. And the question that they have to to wrestle with is the same one that we have to wrestle with today. Am I going to come to Jesus on on my terms or am I going to come on his terms? And what are his terms? In other words, I'm facing a situation, I've got circumstances, and I need God to intervene. But how am I going to approach Jesus? On what basis do I have any confidence that he is going to act on my behalf. Am I going to come to Jesus on my terms or am I going to come on his terms? That's the situation these two individuals found themselves in in our stories tonight. That's the situation that many of us find ourselves in. And whether you're here and you've been a Christian a long time or you're kind of new to the faith or you're not even sure what you believe, every single one of us is going to find ourselves in a position at some point in our lives where we are going to be facing a situation, circumstances, and no matter how hard we try, we're not going to be able to do anything to change where we're at. And we're going to need God to intervene on our behalf. And we're going to come to a place, even if you're not a Christian, where you've tried everything and you say, you know what? Okay, I'm not even sure I believe there's a God, but if there is, God, I really need you to intervene right now. And what, on what basis do we have any confidence that he's going to do so? What are the terms of engagement with our Savior? That's what we're going to explore tonight. We're going to be in the second part of Mark chapter 5. 
Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Remember, last week we left off at the end of chapter 4. Jesus was in a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, A storm came up. Jesus calmed the storm, and they were amazed um, by that. And so Brian talked about that. And then there's this passage that's in between uh, where Jesus actually heals a demon-possessed man. And now tonight, we're going to look at these two stories. And what you really have is you have a sandwich. You have the first story starts, the second story begins and ends, and then we pick back up with the last story. So let's jump right into the text. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. So here's Jesus, right? And uh, he's been on a boat. He's on the Sea of Galilee, okay? And it says uh, this. When Jesus had again crossed over to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus gets off this boat, and uh, by this point in his ministry, his reputation precedes him. His word has gotten out that this guy, Jesus, has uh, miraculous uh, powers. He's got some kind of special connection with God, and people aren't necessarily sure uh, what all that means. And, and so they gather around Jesus, and here comes a guy from the synagogue, a synagogue leader. His name's Jairus. Now, that's significant. Because the synagogue was a place where Jews would worship. Jews would actually go into the synagogue and uh, they would pray and they would uh, hear scripture. What we know today is the Old Testament. They would hear that scripture uh, read and they would actually have an opportunity um, to hear from God's word. Because back then they did not uh, have the Bible like we do today. And so the only way you could hear God's word was to actually go and to hear it being taught in the synagogue. And so uh, this man has power, he has prestige, he's a leader in the community, he's well-respected. We find out later in the story that he's probably uh, wealthy. And so here we have uh, this guy Jairus, and yet despite his situation, despite his circumstances, uh, he knows there's nothing that he's going to be able to do about his situation. Let me pause and... The mic's scraping on the side of my face, which is why you're getting feedback, and I don't want you to have to listen to that. Okay, there. So, so here's Jairus, right? He's tried everything, and if you're a parent, you know how it is when you have a sick kid. Okay? You do everything you can to make that child better. He's probably, the text doesn't tell us this, but I think it's probably safe to infer that he's gone out and he's sought the best medical care that he possibly could find for her. Uh, he's a religious leader, so maybe he's prayed a little extra. Maybe he's been careful to follow kind of the religious teachings, uh, the Old Testament law a little closer, and yet nothing about his circumstances could change. And he finds himself kneeling before Jesus. Here's this religious leader, and he's kneeling before Jesus, and he's begging Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, if there's anything you can do to heal my daughter, will you please come and do it? See, suffering has a way of putting us all on equal footing, doesn't it? It doesn't matter whether you're rich and powerful and have everything going for you. It doesn't matter whether you're poor and you have absolutely nothing going for you. We all suffer. And it puts us all on an equal footing before God, where we find ourselves in the same position this man was in, looking at Jesus and saying, God, I cannot do anything about my circumstances. Could you intervene? And so Jesus agrees. He sets off. 
And, um, of course, the disciples are there and the crowd's gathering around and they're probably following him. And, and, you know, they've seen Jesus work some miracles already. And they're thinking, okay, sweet. All right. Here comes another miracle. What's he going to do this time? And as they set off for his house, this happens. Verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Years and, and if you're wondering that, yes, that's referring to the kind that's specific to women. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So here we have this crowd. They're kind of, they're pressing around Jesus. And there's this woman and she's had this uh, horrible suffering for 12 long years. And she says, if I can just get close enough to touch his garment, that might be enough. That just might be the thing that heals me. You see, this woman is about as far removed from a synagogue leader as you could possibly be. First off, she's a woman, which in that day and age, in that culture, meant that she was basically thought of as inferior. Um, she has no prestige. She has no power. She's not well thought of. This is a, a small town. In fact, she's probably known as the woman with that condition. She's that woman. And she's ceremonially unclean, meaning that people can't come in contact with her, meaning that she is not free to worship God on account of her condition. If she goes down to Jerusalem and goes to the temple, she's not going to be allowed into the temple courts with the other women to the part where the women were allowed to come in. She's not going to be allowed to do that because of her condition. So here's someone, and not only is she emotionally bankrupt, physically bankrupt, and economically bankrupt, she's spiritually bankrupt as well. She has absolutely nothing going for her. And she's desperate. And she's so embarrassed because of her condition. She's so fearful about what might happen that she comes up to Jesus from behind. She can't even approach him from the front because she probably thinks to herself, you know what, if he sees me coming, he's going to know I'm that woman with that condition. And everybody's going to tell him that he needs to avoid me. And he's going to go right around me. And so she comes up to Jesus from behind and she, she puts her hand on his cloak. Do you see the picture that Mark's painted here? He starts off, he's telling us the story of a man who has everything going for him, and yet he can't do anything about his circumstances with his daughter. And he's painted the picture of a woman who has nothing going for her, who has to sneak up in fear behind Jesus in the hopes that she'll be healed. Suffering puts us all on an equal plane before God. And when we come to God, when we say, you know what, I need you to act on my behalf, we have to decide, am I going to come on my terms or am I going to come on his terms? Are we going to approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to do something for me in my life. Are we going to do that on our terms or are we going to do that on his terms? And what are his terms? See, we have to make this choice every day, some of us in our lives. How am I going to come to Jesus. Because all of us face situations where uh, our circumstances are out of control and we need God to intervene on our behalf. Maybe you have, uh, it's a physical situation for you, like one of the characters in our story. And for you, um, you've been to the doctor and as great as doctors are and as amazing as, as modern day medicine is, sometimes there's just nothing that can be done. We live in a fallen world. 
and you find yourself begging Jesus to heal you, or there's someone in your life that's facing a situation like that, and you're begging Jesus to heal him or to heal her. Maybe for you, uh, the situation you face is kind of emotional in nature. Maybe there's a, a relationship and it went sideways. The legs got taken out from under you. Maybe you saw it coming for a while or you didn't see it coming. It caught you off guard. Maybe your marriage um, is just a wreck. Maybe uh, you're here and you have relationship, uh, a friendship for a long time and it's just a wreck. And you're not sure if reconciliation is even possible. Or maybe you just kind of you just kind of feel down all the time and you're not even sure why. You just feel depressed all the time. Or maybe because of some choices you made kind of in the past and some of the consequences, consequences that you're still dealing with here today, you're, you're kind of at a place where you're just not sure that God could ever love you. And so you're just kind of dealing with an emotional thing. Or maybe you're here and you're dealing um, with a spiritual issue. Maybe there's a sin in your life uh, that you have been desperately trying to get rid of. And you have tried everything. And no matter how hard you try, you continue to struggle with the same temptations over and over. And you continue to give in over and over. And you, you realize, God, I need you to do something on my behalf. And you have to make a choice. Am I going to come to God on my terms? Or am I going to come on His terms? And see, even if you're not a Christian and you're here, this is something that you have to decide for yourself, too. Maybe there's just this kind of sense in your life that things are not right between you and God, and you're not exactly sure how that all works out. But every time you try, it seems like you take one step forward and then you take two steps back. And you're just wondering, God, if you're even out there, could you ever love someone like me? Could you ever accept someone like me? Could, could I ever amount to anything because of what I've done in my life? All of us face situations with circumstances where we need God to intervene. We need Him to come to our rescue. We need Him to do something on our behalf. And we have to make a choice. Am I going to come on His terms or on mine? And see, typically we tend to come on our terms and, and our terms are religious in nature. And here's what, we, here's what I mean by that. We try to put God in our debt. That's what religion does. Religion tries to put God in my debt. In other words, because I do something for God, now God has to do something for me, right? God, I, uh, I did a lot of good deeds for you this week. I was really kind to that person, that guy at work that nobody wants to talk to. I actually sat and ate lunch with him. And oh my goodness, he just went on and on and on about Star Trek. And I do not like Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek is for nerds and I am not a nerd. And, you know, and you're just sitting there and, and you just, and you know, but so God, you kind of, you owe me for that one, right? Or maybe you're, you're out there and you're thinking, you know, I saw that guy and he had that sign on the side of the road and it said he was hungry and, and I only had $2, but I gave it to him because really, what am I going to do with those $2? Or God, you know, I, I gave uh, something at church last week or I've been giving regularly. I've been tithing, God, and, um, but now I need you to kind of come through and kind of reward me um, for that, right? God, I, I serve faithfully at work or serve faithfully at church. I do well at my job, even though I don't like it. And God, I kind of, I need you to come through on my behalf. See, we think that because of what we do, we can put God in our debt. As if an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God could somehow be manipulated by imperfect mortals like us. Christianity is not about putting God in our debt. It's about God paying the debt 
for us. It's about us accepting and receiving by faith what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. Christianity is not about coming to God and saying, God, because I've done this, you need to do something for me. It's coming to God and saying, I don't really have any basis on which you should do anything, but I really, really need you to intervene on my behalf. So back to our story. Verse 29, the woman's come up, she's touched Jesus. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Now, if this was a movie, this is the part where the director would like cut to a scene of the disciples. And I would imagine that all 12 of them had a dumbfounded look on their face. And look at what they say, verse 31. Um... You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? Like, Jesus, like everyone is touching you. You know, everyone's brushing up against you. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus, but these first century robes are not exactly slim fit. Okay? I mean, there's like plenty of extra cloth. Are you sure that somebody even touched you or did somebody just kind of brush up against you? And and now that, now that you mention it, why are you even asking if, if someone touched you in the first place? I mean, don't you remember just a little while ago when the, those guys, they climbed up on the roof and they lowered their paralyzed friend down in and uh, you said, your sins are forgiven, get up, and things got real awkward between you and the religious leaders because they didn't like that. And, and you remember how you just kind of knew what they were thinking and uh, it was really cool. And, and so why don't you just kind of use that ability now, tap into, tap into that and figure out you know, who touched you? But, but don't miss this. Jesus is doing something very, very important here. Verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. See, the woman finally realizes there's no hiding from Jesus. And so in fear, she comes to him and she admits everything. And she's embarrassed. And now here she is. She's on her knees before him, just like the powerful religious leader. Because again, suffering is the great equalizer. It puts us all on the same plane. And she, she humbles herself and she kneels before Jesus and she tells him everything. And he says, daughter, go in peace and be free from your suffering. See, Jesus, Jesus wanted to do more for this woman than what she even wanted to do for herself. She was content to just sneak up from behind, touch his cloak, get rid of her physical ailment, and move on. But Jesus wanted to do something more in her life. And friends, Jesus wants to do the same thing in our lives. He wants to restore us completely, just like he restored this woman completely. He takes her and he pushes her past the embarrassment. He pushes her past the shame. And in front of everybody, in front of all these people who would know her as the woman with that condition, he calls her a daughter. And he restores her not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually 
as well. And friends, our Savior wants to do the same thing in your life. He wants to heal you emotionally, physically, spiritually. He wants to heal you completely. But you've got to come on His terms. And His terms are defined in a single word. Faith. Faith is always the means of coming to Jesus. Faith is always the means of coming to Jesus. The only basis we have for having any confidence that when we come, that Jesus is going to act on our behalf is faith. And it's not a perfect faith. It's not faith that says, oh, I have really good faith, so now you're going to do something. And if God doesn't act, that we have weak faith. But rather, it's faith that recognizes, God, I can't do anything about my situation. Because I've tried. I've tried to fix my life. I've tried to fix my problem. I've tried to fix my circumstances. We've gone to all the doctors. And there is absolutely nothing that I can do about my situation. And God, I need you to intervene on my behalf. And I am trusting that you will intervene on my behalf. And I come before you now and I'm humbling myself. And and I know you're not some genie that can be conned or manipulated. But God, I'm just begging you to intervene in my life. To intervene in my circumstances. Not because my faith is so big, but because of who you are. And because my imperfect little itty bitty faith is enough because you have big, perfect faith. Jesus, you have the faith that I'm not able to have in and of myself. Faith is always the means of coming to Jesus. Now, we left off in the middle of another story. And so the text transitions now, verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. You could take that word believe and you could replace it with faith. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Just have faith. See, again, Jesus, he calls for the people around him to have faith instead of fear because faith drives out fear. And you're saying, well, that kind of sounds like last week, faith and and fear. And, And it does. You know why? Because faith is a really, really big deal to Jesus. And faith is always the means of coming to Jesus. And because He loves us so much, and because He cares so deeply about us, that He says, take that fear you've got, that worry, that concern, bring it to me and replace it with faith. Faith that I'm going to actually give you and infuse within you. So here's Jairus, and he has a choice to make. His daughter is dead. That's what they're telling him. Is he going to maintain faith even though the situation seems hopeless? Even though Jesus got kind of sidetracked and delayed and and didn't get there in time to save his daughter? Or is he going to just give up? And he chooses faith. Verse 37, uh, he, being Jesus, did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? 
The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at it. Uh, Jesus, um, you're, you're a little late, buddy. Because remember when that woman um, with that problem, and you got sidetracked talking to her, and, and you got all obsessed over who touched you, and who touched your coat, and you're like, you know. And, and so you kind of, you got sidetracked with that. Well, while that was going on, this little girl was dying. You're too late. You can go ahead and go home. But Jesus, he pushes on. After he put them all out, meaning that he sends them out of the house, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand. And he said, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. This is a a tender uh, expression. This is a term of endearment that Jesus says to this little girl. It's, it's as if I were to go into my daughter and, and to just kind of wake her up from a nap and just kind of place my hand on her back and, or maybe on her hand and just say, sweetheart, wake up. It's time to get up. Now she's two, so usually she's waking us up. Um, but you get the idea, right? Okay. This is a, a term of endearment. The people not laughing don't have kids yet. You will get that someday. And you too will laugh. <laughs> Look how the story ends. Verse 42. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to tell anyone, uh, not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. I find that funny. Uh, Don't tell anyone about that. Yeah, right? When a guy goes in and tells a dead girl to get up and she does... That thing is trending worldwide on Twitter five minutes later today, okay? But here, don't miss this. This is the incredible truth that we see here, particularly in this uh, latter part of our passage tonight. Jesus is so powerful that death is to be no more feared than going to sleep. Because Jesus has power over death. Friends, I don't know what the situation is that you're facing in your life. But regardless of how bleak the situation may seem, Jesus has power over your circumstances. And he invites you to come to him. Not on your terms, but on his terms. And his terms are defined in a single word, faith. Faith is always the means of coming to Jesus. Faith is our only hope and our only confidence that God will hear us and intervene on our behalf. Now, you say, okay, well, what about all those times when he doesn't intervene? What about all those times when uh, marriages aren't healed? What about those relationships uh, that don't get reconciled? What about when Jesus doesn't heal our loved ones from an illness? What about, uh, and you just go on and on and on and on, and, and I understand that completely. And the truth is, this text doesn't really answer that question, but I think it's kind of one that naturally comes up, especially when you read about these almost miraculous encounters. It's like, well, if if that's what Jesus did then, and he's the same God now as he was then, uh, and he has the same power now that he had then, then why wouldn't he continue to intervene in that way today? And you know, this this passage just doesn't tell us. But but here's the truth maybe... Uh, that can help a little bit with this emotional side. And, and the, the reality is that there is no answer that, that completely satisfies us emotionally. We never understand why 
there is no emotionally satisfying answer to that question. You may be able to come up with a, an answer that makes sense logically, but emotionally, I mean, really, there's, there's just no way sometimes when we face circumstances um, like many of us have faced and, and will face, there's no way that we're going to understand the why. But here's what we see in this passage and throughout Mark's gospel. We see Jesus' complete and total power over everything. Jesus has power over sin. Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus has power over disease. Jesus has power over nature. Jesus has power over the supernatural. And in this story, we see that Jesus even has power over death. You see, these two uh, encounters, these two miracles that Jesus does, they're a foretaste of what's one day coming. These are the preview before the main feature. These are the the preview before the day that John, who witnessed this miracle, and he writes about it near the end of Revelation. And he says, I looked and I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth coming down. And this was a new earth where there was no more tears, where there was no more mourning, where there was no more crying, where there was no more death or pain or sorrow because the old had passed away and the new had come. These encounters that Jesus gives us are just a foretaste of what that world is going to be like. Remember when Jesus came on the scene in Mark chapter 1? He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In order for, good, uh, in order for news to be good, something has to be bad. And what's bad is the world that we live in. And none of us need to be told that. All you have to do is look around at the political climate in our world today and the wars and the suffering of people and you realize this is not what it was supposed to be like. This is not what God intended. And the good news that Jesus came to bring is not just good news that we can have a right relationship with God, although that is good news. The good news that Jesus came is not just that he wants to restore us spiritually, although that's good news. The good news that Jesus came and brought with him is that a day is coming when we will be restored completely and totally. That emotionally, physically, and spiritually, we can be restored. And it may not happen in this life, but it will happen one day. Because the Apostle Paul said in Colossians, he says that through the cross, God was reconciling all things to himself. Not just people, but all of creation was uh, being set on a trajectory, that the trajectory that John talks about, where there would be a new heavens and a new earth. And for those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior, for those of us who say, God, even on my best day, even when there isn't anything going wrong in my life, I still need you. I still need Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on my behalf. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, a day is coming where we will experience the joy of living in the presence of our Creator and living in a world like it was meant to be. And so, as as difficult as it is to go through our circumstances sometimes, as difficult as it is to deal with pain, what we see here in Mark's Gospel, what we see in these stories tonight, is that Jesus is on a mission to restore everything. That He's going to restore us in every way. 
and that a day is coming when we won't have to ask why anymore. And in the meantime, while we're here in the present, Jesus invites us to come to him in faith. He says, hey, you know that fear? Let's replace it with faith. He's like, oh, I'm not very good. I'm not very spiritual. I don't have a lot of faith. Hey, hey, it's not about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. Come on. Put your faith in me. See, all of us will have to decide at some point in our lives. Am I going to come to Jesus on my terms or am I going to come on his terms? Am I going to come and try to to get him to intervene because of what I've done? Or am I going to come and humbly say to him, you know what? I can't do anything about my situation. And I'm placing my faith in you, Jesus. I'm placing my faith in your ability to intervene on my behalf. And even when the situation seems hopeless, I'll maintain faith. And even when it seems like you're delaying and you're not doing things according to my time frame, I'll maintain faith. Friends, our Savior invites us to come to Him on the basis of faith. So will you come? Will you put your faith in Him? Let's pray. Father, uh, I just pray for for those who are here tonight and um, who are dealing with something, no matter where that lands, a, a physical, a spiritual, an emotional issue. And God, I pray that um, well, I pray that you would meet them where they are, and that you would that you would heal them, and that you would intervene in their lives, and that as you do, that you would draw them in close to you. God, I pray. Um, just that you would give us the, the courage we need to admit that even on our best days, there's nothing we can do without you. Um, to admit that even on our best days, when we still fall far short of your standard. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection and the hope that that provides us. Hope that a day is coming when there will be no more tears and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more death because the old order has passed away and the new has come. Father, we, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.